here respected. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo. Let me tell y'all something. She is a warrior personified. Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you doing, Rev? <laughs> Listen, I'm I'm all right now. I, I just I'm just happy to see you smile. Listen, if, if there's a if you look into your dictionary and there's a a picture of a strong black woman next to I kick butt and take names. There is also Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo. That she is, she, she right there. She taking, she kicking some butt, y'all. And she and she taking names. She's also, just for y'all to know, let me give some of these these good stats. He's also the author <laughs> of the Pulitzer Prize nominated No Fear, a whistleblower's triumph over corruption and retaliation at the EPA. And she worked at the Environmental Protection Agencies for 18 years and blew the whistle on a U.S. multinational corporation that endangered South Africans. Um, so that just gives you a little background, but she does so much more than that. Um, she's also a dear friend of mine, and I'm just so happy to have her with me here. Um, so uh, Dr. Coleman... Uh, Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo, uh, for those who don't know uh, who you are, uh, who is Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo? Wow. That's one of those soul-searching questions. Um, that's like if you, if you wake me up at 4 o'clock in the morning and say, who are you? How are you supposed to answer that question? <laughs> I think, um, first of all, I'm a mother. Mm. I'm a mother of two, two beautiful, beautiful um, black kids, you know, one is a, a young black male who's been um, challenged in many ways um, of surviving in America um, and uh, has been stopped by police over 30 times um, without even getting a, a parking ticket just because he's black. Um, and um, but at the same time, has a defiant, and wonderful spirit that allows him to continue to navigate through life despite white supremacy. And I have this absolutely drop dead gorgeous daughter who is um, a psychologist um, uh, in the tradition of Francis Cress Welsing, um, who she was able to who mentored her in many ways. Uh, she mentored both my son and my daughter. Um, and uh, and she's also just uh, an amazing woman, young woman. Um, and I'm a wife. And um, in many ways, my political activism comes out of um, my love for black people, my love at the at the at the. Um, you know, on on a very sort of large scale, it would be my love for Black people. And then on a smaller scale, it's, it's down to the family, my love for my children and my husband. Um, and making sure that the next generation um, has a better chance of defeating white supremacy, uh, assuming that we don't accomplish that before uh, it's our time. But the next generation has a chance of defeating this monster before this monster completely destroys the entire planet. 
So, um, so, so at the, at the, at the end of the day, I'm a mom and I'm a wife and I'm a friend. Um, and then on the other side of that coin, I suppose, you know, as I said, my political activism naturally flows from my love of my family and my community. So I'm a political activist and I've been a political activist my entire life. I think my grandmother was a Garveyite. And so I sort of sat at her knee when I was young and Mm. she told me, you know, you are not a Negro, you are an African. Um, And um, and so I I sort of, you know, absorb so much of of her spirit, I think. So um, I think that's who I am. I'm I'm a mom and I'm an activist and I'm everyday kind of person. Mm. Yeah. So we have a lot of folks who are listening who may not know when you say a, a Garveyite what that means. And so who was wow. who was Marcus Garvey? It was Marcus Garvey? Um, he was he he was the leader of the largest political movement in the United States so far. Um, much the Garvey movement was actually much larger, in many ways, much more profound than the civil rights movement mm. of the fifties and sixties. It was a movement of, of African people, you know, who are called by various names, Negro, colored, African-American, but of African people uh, who decided to take destiny in their hands. And they decided that the system of white supremacy was too vile and barbaric for them really to waste their time fighting. And they were going to, in fact, um, create a new nation in Africa where they could live as human beings as opposed to hyphenated individuals in America. Um, and so they so they they organized not only to 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 move to Africa, um, maybe not everyone, but a large segment of, of the population to move to Africa. But while they were in this country, they created businesses. Uh, they created all kinds of means of expression of independence in this country. And, and he was from Jamaica. And I think one of the reasons why Garvey had this vision of, of African-Americans living outside the United States was because he mm. had come from outside the United States. So the United States did not um, encompass for him did not encompass the entire world. I mean, there are people who never leave their neighborhoods and they think the whole world is like their neighborhood. And many, in, in many instances, African-Americans, I think, because we at that point didn't have the opportunity to travel, we began to internalize the fact that America was the whole world. So by Garvey coming in from a different country, he had a different perspective that America was not the world, and perhaps African-Americans, if they couldn't find the freedom and peace um, that they needed in this place, like Harriet Tubman, maybe there's another place they could go where they could find um, a place to live without the violence of white supremacy. So that was the Back to Africa movement. Of course, the FBI uh, was not um, amenable to Marcus Garvey. Um, uh, um, basically carrying off what they considered their private property, the people, low-income wage earners, people who were sort of fueling the economy here, uh, and they set him up. Um, And he ended up, you know, going to jail for some time and then, you know, um, going back to Jamaica. But, But I think 
the the notions of and the philosophy of Garveyism has always been in our community since that time. And it was even before Garvey. Of course, people talked about African-Americans finding a place where they could be free from violence and terror. But I think he he had the leadership skills and the charisma to pull it all together and create this magnificent movement called the Garvey movement. No. Uh, and so let's let's just dive in here on that. Uh, in your opinion, then, knowing your background um, with with just understanding those movements, civil rights movement, um, successful, failure, or to be determined? Um, I'm not sure if you can just, I, I think on, whenever people struggle, whenever they're, whenever people create communities of struggle, you have to, you, you have to, you have to, um, acknowledge that that is a fertile area for debate and, and sharing of wisdom and, and, and creating, um, uh, people creating situations where people can exercise their muscle of of courage. So you can't say that the civil rights movement was a failure, because out of the civil rights movement we get a Rosa Parks, you know we we you know we get a Megar Evers, we get a Stokely Carmichael, we get a Malcolm X coming out of the civil rights movement, influenced by Garvey, influenced by so many other tendencies. So I'm not prepared to say anytime people come together to struggle that that's a failure. It perhaps isn't my particular cup of tea, but I understand that 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 that's a very fertile area for people to learn and to grow and to develop. I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement comes out of the Garvey movement, comes out of the civil rights movement. Um, so none of those are failures. But the question really is. You know, where do those movements take us and what are the demands of those movements? Because movements are known by their demands. And so if a movement is known by by the demand of of sort of uh, uh, channeling people into the Democratic Party. um, Right. If people if movements are known by this concept of integration um, that black people, you know, in and of themselves are not enough and we're integrating into something particularly as foul as, 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 as structural white supremacy. I would think you'd have to question that. Um, and, and so, so I think the movements all have important um, legacies, but I, I had problems with the demands of the civil rights movement. I think the fundamental demand, which was, you know, to stop the terror and torture of black people like Emmett Till and like so many others was an absolute, you know, correct demand. But then as the movement progressed, where basically the the movement almost became, you know, a wing of the Democratic Party as opposed to an independent organizing um, tool was a problem that I, and I think more importantly, that if we look at why the state decided to kill Dr. King, it's very instructive because when Dr. King started reaching out to African leaders, when he started having those kinds of discussions, started questioning uh, the motives and the mission of the Democratic Party, started questioning um, um, integration. And, and one, of the, one of his last statements, of course, when they said, 
you know, do you question uh, the philosophy or the, the, the direction in terms of integration? And he said, you know, I, I have led my people into a burning house. And then someone said, well, what do you do at that point? He said, you know, you become a fireman. Um, so I think at the end of his life, uh, because movements are always dynamic, people are always changing and, 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 and trying to understand how their analysis can be sharpened. I think he began to question some of the directions. He began to question the direction of the civil rights movement. Mm. Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo, for the audience who may not know, you are an activist, you are a historian, you are a former Black Panther, and you are an expert on U.S.-U.N.-Africa relations. So can you tell us about your work with the United Nations and then with the EPA? Yeah, I mean, I had just the, the most amazing opportunity to work at the United Nations. And, and I worked for um, some, a, a, a man who is from um, Cote d'Ivoire. And um, it was, I worked in, under the auspices of the United Nations Development Program. And so I was the representative uh, for, and there was a smaller unit in there called United Nations Sudan Sahelian Office. And we worked in the parts of Africa that were facing desertification or desert encroachment. And so I worked in Tanzania and Uganda and Kenya and Ethiopia and in that entire region to help these countries understand how um, we could bring the wealth of knowledge from the international community to aid these communities that were suffering from, from desert encroachment. Um, and so it was it was it was an amazing opportunity because I, I was able to work with communities, with refugee communities, communities that were fleeing the desert and in which the earth had no was no longer able to provide the capacity to feed them. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I worked on a day to day basis with people who face survival issues and have made the decision to fight on for the next day and not die the day before. Um, and so I learned a lot about courage. And, um, and, and so I did, I worked at the UN for about five or six years and it was, it was an amazing opportunity. Um, and then after I left the UN, I went to the World Wildlife Fund, which is almost the exact opposite of the UN in some ways, um, because it was also an environmental organization but it was a private organization as opposed to a governmental organization. And of course, one of their primary functions was to raise money. And so, um, so that's in many ways where we had a, a parting of the ways um, because I saw how the white NGO community, the white environmental community um, took advantage of Africa's resources and Africa's people. For example, the, the elephant campaign in, 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 in Africa, you know, where people were, of course, demonizing um, people who, in many instances, you know, had to make the decision between killing an elephant or allowing their entire village to die. Um, and I thought that in those situations, a lot of the, the hunters made the right decision that it was important for their, their mothers and fathers and wives and children to survive. 
because killing one elephant could feed an entire village for a whole year. Hmm. So that when you lump in all Africans uh, with poachers and just say that, you know, that one, 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 um, one rule fits everything, then you, then you sort of deny the nuance that is so important in this discussion. And also there was sort of a colonial attitude towards the Africans who are the guardians and custodians of wildlife, that they were all sort of um, described in very primitive terms, whereas the whites who go to Africa to quote unquote, save the Africans from this kind of behavior were all sort of considered noble and civilized. Um, and so, you know, I started pushing back on some of those fundamentals and, you know, and so that was sort of in many ways, my first entree into dealing with the white environmental community. Mm. And, and I, I found it interesting um, that in Africa, they were able to get away with so much that I think in many ways we would have called them on their nonsense in this country. Um, but I don't want to, um, to, um, I want to acknowledge how many Africans also called them on their nonsense. I remember this one Maasai brother uh, who actually came to a meeting with a spear and, and basically said, you know, we want you people out of our country. We want you out of our community. Uh, we've been taking care of these animals for 3000 years. I don't think we need you now. Um, so, I mean, so, so there was a lot of pushback on both sides, but there's a lot of money to be made in this field. And then after I left WWF, I went to the U S environmental protection agency. And that was just a whole different ball of wax. Um, because while I think the majority of people who work for EPA are very devoted and committed environmentalists, it is the United States government. And at the end of the day, all of these agencies um, operate in defense of U.S. foreign policy um, and in the U.S. state. Well, let's talk so. about that. I mean, first of all, let me just say this to you in that regard. I know that a lot of the things you're describing now in your life, which has been so amazing, <laughs> um, is in the works for a movie. And people are looking at this, you know, putting your life onto the big screen because of what you've done. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, one, and I know you as a person, like you, you just, you just living. So I know that this is this, you, they, they're telling the story, but that's got to feel a kind of way when you know, well, particularly in this situation with EPA. So mm -hmm. your work to build the whistleblower coalition mm -hmm. led to the passing of the no fear act right. for whistleblower protections. So, right. Please tell the audience what that means and kind of give a little bit of background on that process. Yeah. So I was at the EPA and I think I was probably among the first generation of what they considered like professionals um, to enter at least the Office of International Activities, which was like the, the most elite office in many ways within EPA. We were the ambassadors, the environmental ambassadors of EPA. We were the ones spread out all over the world, basically, to advise um, heads of state and, and departments on what the U.S. government could provide for them and, and to provide direction for their environmental programs. And so 
that is sort of where I enter EPA. Um, in fact, the reason why I was hired from EPA was literally because they were saying, you know, we've, we initially EPA said they couldn't find anyone with an international background in environmental protection. And then they actually put a sort of a circular out for black people with my kind of background. And, and a friend of mine sort of alerted me to this, but more importantly, my boss at the WWF became head of the EPA. And so there were a number of us who left World Wildlife Fund and went to the EPA after he became um, uh, the, the administrator. Um, but my job initially was to connect the EPA with the United Nations, since that was really sort of one of the areas of expertise that I had. And so I worked to sort of unite various UN agencies with the EP with UN with EPA agencies. And I did that for a number of years. And it was really great because I sort of kept my fingers in the UN work as well as the EPA work. Um, and then the fourth, I think it was the fourth UN uh, UN conference on women in Beijing, China, um, was announced. And so I was pulled into that work and, and to the delegation. And of course, the delegation at that point was headed up by Hillary Clinton. And my job at that point was to, well, at least my, my perspective was that I wanted to get the environment centered within a feminist perspective in terms of why should women care about the environment? I mean, what is it about the environment that's particularly um, uh, triggered or particularly important to women. And so we started doing research on the relationship between cancer and environmental pesticides and toxins. You know, was there a relationship? It sounds, it sounds elementary now, of course, but 20 years, but 18 years ago or 16 years ago, this was a whole new area of research. Was there a relationship between pesticides and chemicals and breast cancer? Was there a relationship between pesticides and and chemicals and uterine cancer, ovarian cancer. Um, what you know? What was the relationship between synthetic hormones and and cancer? Right. I mean, you know, when you when you pour pesticides or you apply pesticides on tomatoes or, ve or vegetables and and or even the kinds of foods that people eat out of McDonald's, right? That are highly, um, you know integrated with, our, with synthetic hormones. What is the relationship between that and the kind of cancers that women were experiencing? And so my job, what I, what I sort of carved out for myself was to go around the world and to talk to women about the risks we were taking um, because of the kind of industrialization that the United States and Europe had experienced and, 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 and the kind of chemical industry that had been developed in the United States that basically fed off of sort of a, an, an ignorance or, or people just not knowing what was in their food, something as basic as what, what they were eating. Um, and so we were able, in fact, to get the word environmental justice. We were the, we were the delegation that got the words environmental justice placed for the first time in the United Nations, in a United Nations document wow. in Beijing, China. And that was like a big deal um, because it, 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 it centered the debate 
around the environment on the issue of justice. And were certain people being left out of that discussion? And were certain segments of society more the target of the chemical industry than other segments of the society? Um, And so that was sort of one of the first sort of big issues that I dealt with at the EPA. And then because of the work I did on that issue, um, unfortunately, I got pulled in maybe, unfortunately, into the Gore and Becky Commission. And that was to be the EPA representative from the White House to the newly elected Nelson Mandela government and to work with the Mandela government to reconstruct their environmental department away from the Afrikaner concept of environment dealing with wildlife and and parks and that sort of thing, to looking at how the department could be of use to the townships Hmm. and to Black people who were were so, um, unfortunately, the target of so much environmental injustice. Um, and so I started working with, with the most courageous human beings ever who has just fought against white settler domination in South Africa, like uh, Bantu Holomisa and a, a lot of people like that who, who, were, who were warriors in South Africa. And, and we were able to work together to try to get the United States government to live up to what it had claimed it was going to do in South Africa, which of course, in many, in much, in many instances, was simply a PR campaign. Hmm. Let's talk more about that, about Africa and, and, and your work activism you uncovered with the harm of the mining um, yeah. and, and, the, and the rare metals and that whole process and, and connect that to the modern day colonialism and also white supremacy. I think that's an important weave in there because there's something that triggered in you to mm-hmm. speak out and mm-hmm. to have no fear. But <laughs> more so than that, you, you, there was something underlining in that when you realized that the system was wrong. Yeah, I, I don't think I went to the EPA with any, I wasn't naive. Um, and you mentioned that I was in the Black Panther Party when I was young. I mean, and most members of the Black Panther Party, as it turns out, were, were young. I mean, we were all between 14. And I mean, uh, Fred Hampton, when he died, was what, 20 years old. I mean, we were all young, right? And the state turned on us and decided to, to kill us. Um, so I don't think I went into the EPA being very naive about racism and structural racism. I, you know, I, I thought on a, a micro level, I would be able to, negav- to, to navigate and to do good within that system. Um, but I didn't, I wasn't naive about it. Um, but when I was uh, in South Africa, um, I found out I was, I found out through my negotiations and through my contacts about a community that was suffering and being um, tortured by multinational corporation. The corporation, I, I'm not sure if you didn't want to say the name, but I'll say it. It's Union Carbide. No, go ahead. It's the South African wing of, of Union Carbide. And it was, it was a couple of years after Bhopal had, had occurred where you know thousands of Indians had died in their sleep from a chemical spill, 
Um, and I found out that a U.S. multinational corporation was engaged, involved in, in unhealthy, in dangerous uh, mining practices in South Africa. And the chemical that they were mining in South Africa was called vanadium pentoxide. Uh, it's a very, very, very dangerous metal, particularly uh, for inhalation. I think even in, in terms of, you know, being exposed to it um, almost on any level that I can think of, inhalation, touch. I mean, it's just one of those level, one of those minerals. If you can excuse me, Reb, that God put inside, deep inside the earth that he really never intended for human beings to come in contact with. Um, but because we're so greedy. And because we are so focused on profit, um, you know, Henry Ford had a major problem with, 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 you know, with, you know, you know, with the, with developing a car, with developing a car that could withstand um, both extreme heat and extreme cold. Uh, and Detroit, as you know, which is, which is the city that I'm from. In Detroit, we experienced both extreme heat and extreme cold. Mm -hmm. and, and so since he had developed, you know, the first Model T in Detroit, he was well aware that the steel that was being used um, to sort of to, 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 to make this car, that there was a major problem. It kept, the steel kept cracking. It, it didn't have the flexibility to go from extreme heat to extreme cold without developing, you know, some mechanical problems. There was a French scientist who wrote Henry Ford um, a letter and basically said, you may want to try including a little bit of vanadium pentoxide, uh, mixing, in other words, mixing a little bit of vanadium uh, pentoxide into the steel as an alloy. So in order to give the steel the kind of flexibility it would need to expand and contract, depending upon, um, uh, depending uh, uh, when exposed to ver ver various weather conditions. Now, this is important for airplanes. This is important for trucks. This is important for computers, that the steel is able to expand and contract depending upon weather conditions. And when Henry Ford um, discovered this, it provided the knowledge that he needed to really sort of gear up his, um, you know, his ability to produce Model T Fords. Mm -hmm. um, since that time, Western society has realized that the same thing is true for almost any kind of armament, whether it's a bomb, whether it's bullets, whether whatever it is, airplanes, the computer that you and I are, are, are talking through right now, the refrigerator, the stove, Anything that has steel in it that you're probably look your microphone has vanadium pentoxide in it. And 80% of our vanadium pentoxide comes from South Africa. Wow. So vanadium pentoxide is considered more important than gold and diamonds. In fact, in CIA reports that were released, um, um, you know, it was noted that you know, without vanadium pentoxide, Western societies just simply couldn't function. So here's a small African community that's providing vanadium pentoxide. But the problem is health effects. 
The health effects of coming in contact with vanadium pentoxide were very devastating and often fatal. And some of the first signs of vanadium pentoxide poisoning is that your tongue turns a bright green. And then you start bleeding from every orifice of your body, your eyes, your ears, your genitals. Um, you begin to develop cancers of the larynx, the lungs. Um, and so when I found out about this devastating um, disease in an American corporation, now this is where I was naive. I thought that when I contacted the White House and said, we have a problem, there is a U.S. multinational that's mining this, this mineral to a nation that we consider a friendly nation. Um, and I think, you know, I, I am asking for permission to call the CEO of Union Carbide and ask them, you know, to sit down with, with, with me and with other people in South Africa to work out some kind of program plan when we can begin to protect the workers in South Africa. And at that point, everything just went completely cold. Mm. And, and basically I received what is generally referred to in the government as a let them die order. Um, and, and, and that means, and that is exactly what it sounds like that U S interests are, are, if you look at a cost benefit analysis, the costs, the, 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 the costs outweigh the benefits of letting these people know about what's happening to them. And at that point, and I, then, of course, you go through all the different chains and you try to get someone to listen to you and you try to get someone to understand that these are human beings with families and and they have a right to work in a safe environment. And for me, every single door was closed. Mm. Um, and um, maybe the breaking point for me when I blew the whistle was that there was a, a woman, her name was Betsy Mdoda. And we had brought her and some other South African environmental leaders to the United States. And she had an orphanage. Her son had died in the rebel, in the fight for democracy in South Africa. And as a result, she had opened the orphanage for kids who had lost their, their parents in the fight for democracy. And it was, it was her whole raison d'etre. I mean, it was her whole reason for being. And she had poured her life into saving these children. Um, and so EPA had agreed to give her a small grant to help her um, fine tune sort of the message to to create a job center through the orphanage where we would teach these children some skills, environmental skills, how to mitigate various you know chemicals or how to mitigate lead poisoning or whatever uh, in South Africa. So that when they when so when they became of age, they'd have a, they'd leave the orphanage with a a viable skill uh, to make their life, to, to be able to, to, um, to, to move forward with their lives. And, and we had, and, and, and she had told me that if the, you know, we had made certain demands that her, her, or the roof had to be fixed. She couldn't have leaking water in her house. I mean, you know, all these just safety things that she couldn't afford to do. And she literally took a loan Mm. to be able to fix up all these things so she could get the, the loan, she could get the grant from the United States government. And because I was blowing the whistle on vanadium, they pulled the loan. They pulled the grant from her orphanage. And because she had borrowed money against 
my promise that we were giving her a grant, she had to close the orphanage. And all these children were let out on the street basically to die. Um, what, what, what time is all of this going on? This what time frame? This is around 1995, 96. Um, and, so um, Bill Clinton is in office here. Bill Clinton is, a, is in office. Al Gore is the environmental um, guru at that point. And I'm co- reaching out to everybody to say we can't. This is a tragedy of untold proportions. Uh, lots of people are going to die as a result of this. And all the doors were shut in my face. And and in fact, Sister Endota died about six months after her orphanage closed. Hmm. Um, and I was the one that had to call her that day and tell her that the grant was not forthcoming. And all I can remember was just the screams on the other end of the phone. Um, and I think at that point I picked up the phone and I called the Washington Post and I blew the whistle on, on what the United States, what EPA was doing in South Africa. Let's talk about that. Um, and you know, what, what, what went into that process and the risk on your life now, because you're now putting yourself in a, in a very precarious situation, your livelihood, your social, your emotional, everything. Yeah. Now on the front burner. Yeah. 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 It wasn't easy. Um, I mean, I had two small kids that I talked about at the beginning of this of this program. Um, I remember, you know, having the discussion with my daughter and she must have been maybe six, seven years old at the time or whatever. And I remember, you know, saying to her, you know, we're not going to be able to afford to live in the house we're living in now because mommy is going to, um, you know, I'm going to most likely get fired. And but we will find another great place to live and we'll all be together as a family. And I remember she she wrapped her arms around me and she said, mommy, I'm so proud of you. It means that you, I'm not going to see you cry anymore. And I said, no, we're really going to be OK. And I felt really good about it. And then I was on my way to my bedroom and I hear her crying in her bedroom Mm. and I go in her bedroom and I said, why are you crying? And she said, mommy, does this mean that I'll have to leave my school, that I have to leave all my friends and my teacher? And that's when I realized that, you know, that this, it was a huge decision I was making. I was literally pulling the stitches out of my children's lives. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it, it it was an enormous decision that we made, but we but my husband and I decided to make it anyway, and we decide I'm sorry we decided that um, you know that our family was was no better than the families in South Africa, mm-hmm. that if they were prepared to take the risk every day of going into those mines, if they were prepared to take the risk of of of, of their whole lives being turned upside down, um, that our lives were not better than their lives. And that in fact, you know, we had a duty at that point um, that we would just have to explain to our children that there are times when sacrifice is required. And that even though they were very young, that that was one of the lessons we wanted them to learn. 
And so both of us decided that um, that I would move forward with the whistleblowing. Now, we didn't know at the time that it was going to get really, really, really dicey um, because once EPA discovered that I had blown the whistle um, and they I don't I still don't know how they discovered it, but they did. And one day they called me into the office, a whole room full of white men in suits. Maybe it's one of the reasons why I hate suits today. I just really, I just can't stand to see suits. But anyway, um, so I'm glad you don't have on one right now. Um, And I remember they asked me the question, you know, are you the one sending these, uh, are you the one encouraging the NGOs to send letters to the White House exposing what we're doing in South Africa? And of course I said, yes. I, I am the one, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging people to tell the truth, that when they call me, I tell them the truth. And what they do with it, it and, and what I'm hoping they will do with it is to, is to put pressure on the U.S. government to do the right thing in South Africa. So I plead guilty to all of it, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, I filed a complaint, a, a suit, lawsuit against the U.S. government which I eventually won. And I won, I think, the lot one of the largest lawsuits ever been won against the United States government. Um, and um, but I had no idea about the death threats that were about to come my way. I had no idea that when I took an independent group of black doctors to South Africa so that we could finally get a handle on what the U.S. government did not want me to find out when I was working at EPA, that they would, you know, they would try to kidnap my daughter mm-hmm. um, and that it would be South African mine workers that would track down the kidnapper, um, fight them and rescue my daughter and bring her back to me. Mm. Um, so, um, so I had no idea how, how far this had gone up in the U.S. circles. Now I understand that a lot of what happened to me was actually, you know, uh, being orchestrated out of very, very, very high offices in the United States government. I'm glad I didn't know, actually. I thought it was all at the EPA level. Um, But I found out later that it wasn't and that my family was in a lot more danger than we we realized. So uh, for those who are listening, I I think what's important to note is this. One of the one of the most beautiful moments in my life and uh, was actually, and we're going to get to legislation, but was actually receiving the No Fear Award from oh, Dr. Marsha Coleman <laughs> out of bio. Um, for those who probably should know now from listening uh, and maybe don't know, is that I also became a type of, not to the level that you're hearing now, but a type of a whistleblower, just being courageous when I was with the U.S. Air Force and began to speak out against the war in Iraq um, and was threatened uh, with conduct on becoming an officer and a threat to national security. And what you're hearing from Dr. Marsha right now is is real. You don't, you don't know how far this thing goes up the food chain. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, very, it's very, very serious. And the toll that it takes, it still takes, I ain't gonna lie, the toll that it, that process still takes on me Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I became uh, a single father, um, and because you know, at that time, my partner wasn't wasn't with uh, this 
that that road. And and for those who understand that road, you can understand. I mean, I'm not. It's, it it is no difficult. I mean, it is it is not an easy road at all. And mm-hmm. so, talk something about what you did and the legislation that came out of that, because you have now created something that many folks now use to make their lives a little better. Yeah. And before I do that, I mean, I think one of the things that sort of connected between the two of us, which I think we almost instinctively, even even before we knew each other's stories, I think, you know, we sort of connected on the spiritual level because I remember the day I met you, Mm. we were on Capitol Hill and we were we were we were trying to get I'm not sure what year it was. But we were we were trying to get members of Congress to do the right thing. Let's just sort of make it very generic. <laughs> and and I and we met you and we and and if if I remember correctly, I think as soon as we met each other, we said, well, why don't we join forces and go see this member of Congress together? <laughs> and and one of the things that you said in that meeting that I have carried with me, I guess, almost my entire life, almost my entire, you said, um, young people, maybe only fifty percent of the present, but we're a hundred percent of the future. That's right. Do you remember saying that? I do remember that. That's, yeah. and, and I thought like, wow, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some black leaders need to hear that quite frankly. Right. Because I mean, I was just aghast when I saw all these elderly people coming out of the white house and I didn't see any young folks there. Right. Um, but but anyway, just to say that I appreciate you so much because, you know, what you went through as a whistleblower and what I went through as a whistleblower. And when people think of whistleblowers, they don't think of black people. No. They usually think of white men, Julian Assange and everyone. And I give them all praise. And God, I keep thinking I could have been in his position. Right. I mean, you could have been in Julian's position. That's right. And so it's only by the grace of God that that somehow that that was not our road. But um, but just to say how much I appreciate um, what you've done and the brilliance and the grace in which you've done this. So I've forgotten the question that you asked me. No, now. I just well, I appreciate <laughs> the answer though. <laughs> I, I guess it was just that legislation. Just I was just saying you now created you talk about the legislation that was created out of that experience. Yeah, out of that experience was created. Uh, so I testified before Congress a couple of times, actually against uh, sitting right next to the EPA administrator at that time, um, and she was crying and all anyway nonsense. But um, so so out of the out of the legisl- out of the hearings came the legislation, which was the notification of federal employees. Anti-Discrimination and Retaliation Act of 2002. I must tell you, before that, I won my case, and um, that was huge. Um, and as you know, as a whistleblower, one of the problems that we have is we're isolated because, you know, it's like we have this neon sign on us, whistleblower, and everybody wants to stay as far away from us as possible because they know we're about to be fired, right? So nobody wants to go down that road with us. <laughs> Um, and, um, and so I was like that too. I, 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 I don't know how real I can get on your program. You can get, you can get all the way real. So I'm in the bathroom one day and there's this pregnant woman using the bathroom. And for those of you, your, or your listening audience who've been pregnant, you know that when you have to go to the bathroom, you've got to go to the bathroom because you've got like 12, 20 pounds that are like pushing on your, on your bladder. 
And so when she heard my voice, literally, she stopped in midstream mm. and got out of the bathroom. <laughs> That's how bad it was to be around me at that point. Um, and but I must tell you that what people would do when I was in, in court fighting to against the EPA is they would literally come to the courthouse in summer in the in, you know, in the summer in Washington, D.C., and they'd have on like a winter coat with a wig on top of their heads. And a, and a muffler around there and anything to disguise who they were. And they would come and, and, and they would just say, you know, we're here with you, but you know, we don't want anyone to know that we're here. Okay. And I was, I was, I was always just very honored that people went to such lips to show solidarity with me. I remember I walked into my office once and there was a thousand dollars check on my desk. Mm. Um, I mean, people just really in their own ways, you know, showed and the day that I won, um, literally, the, the agency almost exploded. And people realized that they could take on the U.S. government and win. They could take on the U.S. government and win. So um, I considered that like a major achievement. But then we went on to pass a law. It took us about two or three years. We did pass it. And now every single, you can, right now, if you want to, you can go to any government agency, you can name whatever, White House, CIA, whatever, on the front page of that agency will be an icon, which will say no fear. Mm. You click on that icon and it will tell you how many people in that agency have filed discrimination complaints. It will tell you the disposition of those complaints. It will tell you what the what departments they're in. I mean, it will it will give you information that you need so that you can organize. I mean, when I was at EPA, I didn't know if I was the only person who was fighting the agency or if there were a hundred other people. Now you don't have to wonder about that anymore. You can organize because you can find out who those people are. And also, when I won my case, the money came out of a slush fund out of the Treasury Department, so that EPA never had to be held accountable for discrimination because the money didn't come out of the department. Mm. Under no fear, every time you when when the agency loses a case, the money now comes out of the budget of that agency and they have to go to Congress to explain why their budget has been reduced by a half million dollars or a million or whatever it is. So we put in every two years, every federal employee must take no fear training and you must take no fear training within 90 days of joining the federal government, which means. That now you know your rights, you know exactly when managers have stepped out of line, you know exactly how to fight for your rights. And in fact, one of the ways that EPA got back at me after we passed the law was they refused to allow me to take no fear training. So that's just how petty it got. Um, but, but, But nevertheless, every year, about 7 million to 9 million people take the training course and they take it every two years. So that literally you can, one, one of the producers for the movie that, that you're talking about, when I told her this, somehow she thought that just sounded like so incredible. She said, I'm going to ask my my cousin who is in, in, in Anchorage, Alaska, has she ever taken no fear? Because I just, I found this is be incredible. So she called her cousin in Alaska, wherever she is. And the woman said, oh yeah, you want me to tell you what no fear is? I can tell you all my rights. I can tell you all the responsibilities of the agency. <laughs> and I can tell you the section I can find it in because every two years I have to take this course. Wow. So so I think we did a good job. I mean, well, I think 
I think we tried, as they say in Africa. We tried. Yeah. Um, no, you did. You, you definitely, you definitely did a good job in, and and I, I'm so excited. One thing I I, I, I want to say this. I was talking to the producers of this of this conversation that we're having now, and one of the things I was telling them is that I am very blessed to be around a lot of amazing people, mm-hmm. but a lot of times they don't know. They don't get to hear from those who have who have done this work, and I'm always like, wow. And it's it's like they only get to see who kind of is put before them. And me also knowing who's kind of put before them a lot of times, I'm like, man, those folks being put before you ain't really that tight. The folks are really tight. I'm so happy. And so you're one of those people. With that being the background, I want to ask you this question. That's crazy. No, yeah. it, it it is crazy. But as as so as people are now learning, uh, you know, your work has ranged from deep and um, you know, deep public activism. Um, as an as an activist, you as a as a whistleblower to the uh, to the academy, mm-hmm. um, but in fact, many of our community leaders mm-hmm. have moved into institution mm-hmm. if they have survived the brutality and the violence of mm-hmm. the police state, mm-hmm. and a lot of them have kind of moved into these positions. Mm-hmm. Sometimes particularly into the academy, mm-hmm. almost now removing themselves from the struggle. Mm-hmm. So why are so many of mm-hmm. our movement leaders and elders, mm-hmm. many of which are obviously, you know, been around for a while, transitioning mm-hmm. to the academy? Mm-hmm. What has your journey to the academy been? Mm-hmm. and to be honest, why are you still in the streets? <laughs> wow. Um, so, yeah, so I started out as a university professor. Um, you know, I, I, I did summer teaching at MIT, which is, as you know, where I, I went to school and and well, where I went to graduate school. Um, and and then when I left MIT, I came to the American University and I was doing my political science teaching and 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 you know I really loved it, Africa, teaching African policy. Um, but there was for me, it was a bit unsatisfying. I I loved being around my students, and I I think I was an okay teacher. I'm not sure I was a great teacher. I think I was an okay teacher, but but for me. I really needed to be active in the street. I mean, I'm a, you know, my, I grew up as a Garveyite, you know, I, 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 I wanted to take the skills that I had learned in academia and I wanted to translate that into, into strategy that would work for everybody, not just those who were fortunate, fortunate enough to go to, to the academy. Um, so I, I taught at the American University and ran into just the most god-awful racism you can ever imagine at American University. Um, and then the, the Black Caucus invited me to come and be a senior analyst at the Black Caucus and Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. And um, and so then I started working to put together an international section of that. Because when I first got to the, 
Black Caucus, they were only talking about domestic policy. And of course, my background is international. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted very much to have these discussions, particularly South Africa was like a big issue at that point. Um, And so then I started working on the international issues in South Africa. In fact, the reason why I got canned at the Black Caucus was because I invited a group of people from the West Bank um, to come and speak at the Congressional Black Caucus. And um, and that was a no, no. Um, I mean, I remember walking into my office the next day and I said, we can't believe you had all these Palestinians um, at the Black Caucus meeting. I was like, yeah, well, they're oppressed people. We, we need to talk to them. Well, you can talk to them outside of the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation mm. at that point. So then I went back to academia and, you know, I started teaching at Georgetown and some other places. Um, but for me, teaching... Um, I love teaching, but for me, I've always had this love of being, as you said, in the street. I love, I love, have, I love that direct um, interaction between um, developing a strategy, putting it into place, and then challenging power Mm. in a very frontal way. And I think that that really, in many ways, is my my own particular talent, and it's and that's developing strategies and confronting power in a very frontal, in a very direct way. And so now, as you know, I'm really engaged in trying to stop the con- ongoing desecration of an African burial ground in Bethesda, Maryland, and it's one of the most obscene and vile. Um, uh, cases of white supremacy I think I've ever confronted. I think of South Africa a lot because it makes me feel very much like I'm still in South Africa. But more importantly, it makes me always cognizant of the fact that we are colonial citizens of the United States, um, that our rights, you know, are circumscribed by the needs of our co- of the people who run this country. In other words, you can sit at the table as long as you're saying what the people at the table want to hear. Um, but as soon as you start saying things that are um, that are considered um, what I would consider really progressive, um, you begin to lose a lot of your followership. So I like I like being in a, in spaces where I am not circumscribed, where I'm where I'm, I have the freedom to to say and do and move as I please. That's in many ways what I define as freedom. And um, and so, so the people that I'm dealing with now, we just wrote a book, we just, we just finished writing a book on this, on the River Road African community. You know, this is the first generation of Africans uh, who are kidnapped, who are brought to the United States um, to work on what I call deaf camps. I don't call them plantations. I'm writing a new, another book now called um, Decoding the Language of White Supremacy. Mm. And, um, and, and so I've started trying give us, to- Give us some examples of that. Give us some- Decoding the language. Yeah. Well, I, think, I think the most prominent language is how we describe ourselves and we think of ourselves, which is slaves. Um, you know, um, the Europeans decided um, that we were going to we were going to speak their language 
But not only were we going, this is at least in the United States, not only were we going to speak our language, but they were going to set parameters around the language we spoke. So that would, so they began to, in fact, define not only the language, but define how we, how we, how we think of ourselves and how we think of our ancestors. And so even the language that we use has been weaponized against us as a people. And so people actually think of their of themselves through this language. And so but, but when I was having a discussion this morning with this linguist and we were talking about the fact that when that you know when when Africans when Africans describe themselves um without the the without the parameters of being punished or tortured for it they didn't call themselves slaves mm. they call them you know if you read edward baptist's book the half has never been told they would say you know we were people who were taken we were people who were kidnapped they maybe didn't use the word kidnapped but people who were taken people who were stolen i think is the word that edward baptist uses right if you listen to the lyrics in our songs before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. When, when Black people had a way, had, a, had, had the opportunity to define who they are, they didn't define themselves using the terms of their oppressors. You know, I, this book was actually started, I started thinking about this book about maybe 25 years ago. I was, I was conducting an oral history with one of my great aunts. And she was about 90 years old at the time. And I was, and we were talking about her parents. And I said to her, so your parents were slaves. And she said, no, my parents were my parents. Hmm. And I said, but they were slaves. She said, no, my mother was my mother and my father was my father. She said, did we really send you away to those fancy schools for you to come back this dumb? Why are you using the language of people who, who kept us, who kept us in bondage? She said, you're using their language. She said, my mother was my mother. Now white people may have seen her in a different way, but I saw my mother as my mother. And don't you dare call my mother a slave. My mother was a hero. My mother was a sister. My mother was an aunt. Don't circumscribe my mother. And it was, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. And it was like the first time in my life, at least, that I thought, wait a minute, who told me to use this word? Where did I get this word from? And I realized at that point, that, you know, we have been fed a steady diet of words that we didn't even question. For example, the word plantation. If you go to the dictionary and you um, and, and you look up, what is a plantation? A plantation is a place that people are, are growing plants, right? They're growing, you know, agricultural produce. Is that really what was happening on the plantation for us? Yeah, they were growing tobacco, they were growing cotton, but we were dying. So what's more important? What is being grown or who's dying in that space? So Europeans defined what was happening in that space by what was growing because that's how they're making money. But for us, 
we defined that space as the fact that we, we had gone someplace to die. We had gone someplace to die. We had gone to a place that was going to kill our dreams. We had gone to a place that was eventually going to work us to death. We had gone to a place because we were going to be used as a clog in the wheel to make money for other people. That is what. So, 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 so the book that I'm writing just explores how Europeans, white supremacy, weaponized language, and how we have internalized their weapons against us and how we, we, have created these feelings of inferiority or these feelings of feeling like we're less than others because of the weaponization of language. We dream in this language. Mm. You know, we love in this language. And yet this language has been is, is used as a baton against us. But my theory is that if we can begin to re-examine the words that creates so much hurt and pain, and we can begin to redefine who we are, then we can begin to navigate our way, even using the German that we're speaking now or the English derivative. We can, we can begin to navigate out of that to another place where we can manipulate an oppressor's language in our favor. Let me tell you something. Dr. Marshall Cole, you better go ahead now. You come on. You know you bad. You know you bad. I like it. Come on now. You know, I, I, you ain't nothing, nothing to play with here. My, my, my. I tell you. Listen, I, I need us to t- touch on this topic because I need I need for folks to really understand about the Moses Cemetery. I need yeah. us to, I need us to touch on that because from what I understand now, that that cemetery has is trying to be sold and there is a corporation led by a a a white woman and the white woman has said that she wants to buy uh wants to buy dead black bodies and 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 and, and so I, I need you to break that what is the most cemetery and how in the world do we get to this point here yeah um, so I, I'm not sure that the quote is, I mean, she, she refuses to talk to us. We've written to, I have written to her three or four times asking for a conversation and she's not responded. I, those are my words, dead black bodies, because, you know, I, that's what she's buying. She's buying dead black bodies. And the question is why in the world would anyone want to buy dead black bodies? I mean, that's what right. motive, what I mean, what um, what can you possibly hope to gain? I mean, she's a venture capitalist, so she so it's clear she wants to make money. That's what they do. Well, tell uh, folks first what what is Moses Cemetery, so they can okay, understand. Okay, Moses it. Cemetery is 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 um is and where is it? It's in Bethesda, Maryland, which is the second most, I guess, is what second wealthiest um Montgomery County is the second. Bethesda is actually the second wealthiest city in the United States. Um, And so it's a very wealthy county. Um, Maryland was was deeply engaged in the kidnapping trade, um, um, which means deeply ingrained in torture and terror of African people. And around 17, mid 1700s, 
uh, Africans were brought to Bethesda in particular uh, to provide their technology and their science. Because remember, Europeans didn't know how to grow crops on a commercial level. Um, but Africans had developed through the golden age of Africa, which is something that we're not taught in school. But through the golden age of Africa, there was just this explosion of technology and science, cataract surgery. I mean, all kinds of scientific inventions that Europeans were, were gaga over when they came to Africa. You know, the first universities were created in Africa, established in Africa. University of what we now call Timbuktu with advanced technologies, incredible medical school. Um, so there's a book that we just wrote that called The River Road Community that everyone should get a copy of. But anyway, we, we outline all of this in the book. But so they go to Africa because they know Africa has all this uh, knowledge and they transfer all this technology and intelligence from Africa to the United States or to the new world. And so, so, so River Road and Bethesda starts receiving all these, these kidnapped Africans. Um, and, and, and the goal is to create these huge tobacco plantations. And when these, and, and I should say to fast forward around 1809, when this, what they call the transatlantic slave trade, which we call the human trafficking trade, African, Euro-American, Euro, uh, human trafficking trade. When, when that ends, people like the councilman family and other families decide that they are now going to meet the needs of the Southern states by trafficking in little black girls and by setting up these huge sex centers um, on River Road in which they are going to force these little black girls into breeding uh, in the most horrific, barbaric ways that you can ever imagine. Um, so, so we know now from, from research that about 50% of these little girls die. They bled out childbirth. And we know that a large portion of people who had to, who were forced and tortured into working from can't see in the morning to can't see at night died in the fields in River Road. When they, when these Africans died, they were dumped in an area that we now call Moses Macedonia African Cemetery. Mm. So Moses Macedonia African Cemetery is divided into two unequal parts. There's the part um, between the late 1700s and 1864, 1865, in which Africans are dumped, their bodies are being dumped into mass graves. And then there's the part after 1911, when a benevolent society comes into existence and they now have what is considered a cemetery where Africans can be buried in a dignified way um, so that family members can visit and, and that sort of thing. We're fighting for both sections of the cemetery. And Montgomery County has spent the last 70 years trying to hide what we call the Ma'afa, which is the genocide of this Black community on River Road. Um, and it is, it is an, it's an amazing story. But that's the cemetery and those are the people. And I should just tell you that on the post-emancipated side, after they left this, this horrific Euro-American kidnapping um, scheme, 
these Africans dived right into work. They bought so much land that there's a portion of Bethesda that was called Grayland because Charlotte Gray had bought so much land that Black folks started saying, girl, go get it. You think we're going to call this Grayland now because mm. you bought up so much land. Um, Black folks on River Road actually um, built the, the the bunkers under the White House that, that all these people, when they're nervous about demonstrations going on outside of the White House, they go into the bunkers. Um, that was all built by the folks on River Road that are now being desecrated and their graves are being dug up and sent to landfill. Um, the folks on River Road were the ones that built the, the colored wing, uh, provided the funds for the colored wing of suburban hospital that everyone goes to in this area. Because the, the husbands and the, they would, it, before the suburban hospital had a colored wing, the families had to try to get pregnant women to the Freedman's Hospital at Howard University. And a lot of the women didn't make it before they mm. could get to Washington, D.C. And so this community raised some money to put a colored wing on, on suburban hospital. I mean, it goes on and on and on. The creativity, the ingenuity, the entrepreneurship. These are the people who are being dug up right now as we speak and taken to landfills. And when they get to the landfill, there are two trucks awaiting their remains. One is a crusher so they can crush any kind of evidence of Black life that came out of the cemetery. And the second is a steamer to make sure there wasn't that anything that wasn't crushed is steamed out of existence. This is the depth of vileness of Montgomery County. And we have a county executive, Mark Elrich, who is at the center, at the center of this 21st century mafia, the genocide of this community. And so we, you know, so, so if you talk to Mark about this, he'll tell you, oh, you know, that's not really a cemetery. That was the black all of it is lies. Black people have fought, they lived in that area. And in many instances, Black people buried their relatives very close to where they lived. They had family burial plots near their homes. Uh, and all of that is being denied. It's all being denied. And it's all a big lie. And what, so we're, we're calling Mark Elridge out. What can folk, I, I want to make sure, what can folk, where can they go now? Give, give them a, a link and a website. A website, BethesdaAfricanCemetery.net. Please go there. We have a Facebook page, Bethesda African Cemetery. We have Instagram. We have Twitter, um, Bethesda African Cemetery. Um, you know, we have a book uh, that I wish I had a copy of it right here. I'd show it to you. Um, that they can, but if you go on our website, you can actually purchase a book, you can purchase t-shirts. Um, and, and we have a Friday, uh, 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 Friday meetings, 1.30 East Coast time. People are welcome to come into that meeting. We're now demonstrating in front of the woman who bought our ancestors. Um, uh, so we're asking people to join us in front of her house. Um, this is also her corporate address too. So, um, whatever. Um, so we're asking people to join us on Mondays at five o'clock um, because uh, this has to be answered. You know, we cannot have a 21st century slavery situation where we have white people buying black people, whether they're dead or alive. Mm. This, this has to stop. This has to stop. And it stops right here in Bethesda 
at Moses Macedonia African Cemetery. Well, I know we have folks from all over the world who listen, but if you you heard the website, if you want to just help out, definitely need help. Or if you're local, if you're if you're in that area, if you're in the the DMV, as they, as we call it, Maryland area, please support. Dr. Marshall Coleman, man, I, I knew this would be, I knew this would be a long, I knew this would be a good and it will take longer. So I'm so glad you took a little extra time. I do have one more question I do have to end on. This is actually, I, I think it, we can't end this without this. So hopefully you can, this indulge me just a little bit more time to ask this one last question here. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm almost afraid of what the question is going to be, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is the question. How do you feel about how environmental justice mm. is embedded in the current U.S. administration? And would you say it's been co-opted and mm. that we should be concerned based on your known insight and experience with the EPA and mm. other federal agencies along with the neglect of black people and black environments. Yeah, I um that's an issue obviously I've spent a lot of time thinking about and you know you know I when I was working in the office of environmental protection at EPA you know I saw how communities were pitted against each other. And in the way it was it was in many ways, very clever, the way they would get these different organizations to fight against each other. I mean, something as simple as um, as offering a grant. And and then, you know, you are, and, and because all these organizations are struggling for money and for influence and that sort of thing. And I actually saw where they would offer three or four environmental justice grants and then you now, instead of working together with, you know, sister organizations, now you're actually competing with them for the little bit of money that's out there, right? Um, and, and so in many ways, the government begins to mold and it begins, begins to mold the, the kinds of issues that people work on because people start working on issues that they can get paid to work on. Um, and, and, it, and it begins to influence um, the direction of the movement. And so um, I just think it's very important. And I know that we're not independently wealthy and that we all need to have resources so we can do the work that we need to do. Um, but I just think we need to be aware of the fact that these big agencies like EPA, Department of Agriculture, my God, if it does, it does, it's it's been one of those agencies that I think should just be an embarrassment. Um, mm-hmm. Um, to the to the country, quite frankly, the way they've treated black farmers um, who are environmentalists, many of whom are environmentalists and they, and they grow our food, quite frankly. Um, but, you know, we need to somehow take control of the agenda and not allow the money to take control of the agenda. Like I see like asthma as being one of the major and, and, and these kinds of issues that we deal with upper respiratory diseases that, that black children deal with that limit their futures and limit their, their life expectancies as being a major issue. Um, I see the chemical poisoning in our communities that I discussed earlier with Monsanto and Dow and these other 
um, these other um, uh, multinational corporations as being a, a major issue for the Black community. Um, and yet it's hard to, to really get funding to, to, to look at the kinds of chemicals that are actually killing Black people. And so then our agenda sort of shifted towards, you know, issues where the money is, not necessarily where the need is, but where the money is. Mm. So somehow we need to create pools of money that we control so that we can begin to define the agenda and not allow these agencies to define the agenda. And that's a tall order. You know, I was looking, listening to a program the other day where you know, some of these multi-billionaires are giving a million dollars to this and a billion dollars to that. Well, we need to have that kind of conglomerate for, for, for the environmental community so that, you know, if asthma is a major issue for us, then, then let's, let's take our resources and our brain power and go there. Um, but that isn't usually the way we define our agenda, I think. I think, it, I think when, when the environmental justice movement first started, you know, it was started with a lot of idealism. And a lot of, you know, obviously exuberance. But then as it matured, it began to develop more into, you know, where the areas of funding. And, and I, I see that, I see that as being entrepreneurial, yes, but it's also a problem in terms of program development that's relevant to our people. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but that's sort of the way I, I see that. You answered it. Wonderfully, and you were amazing. And you, and this so were is a, you. So thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. No, nah. and our guest today is Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo, author of the Pulitzer Prize nominated book. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of the coolest show, Dr. Marsha. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am so honored to be with you. You're one of my heroes, so thank you so much. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show.